Well, here is a man, obviously, who will never, as long as he lives, forget about the horrors that he experienced in the Holocaust. After telling the Ephesian church the truth about their spiritual condition, apart from grace, um, and encouraging the Ephesian believers with God's method of intervention and assuring them that they have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2, to explain their place in the family of God. And he continues to explain our place in the family of God. As we move deeper into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we will explore today the contours of Christian maturity. In the section of Scripture that we will study together this morning, Paul has a, a very special message concerning Christian maturity that I have the pleasure of unpacking for you. I found that one of the great challenges of the Christian life, and I'm sure you will agree with this, is maintaining proper perspective. It's so easy, is it not, to, to get discouraged It's so easy to wallow in guilt over some sin that you have committed yesterday or last week or last month. And for some of you, you may still struggle with guilt over a sin that you committed years and years ago. Losing focus is not unusual as we as the followers of Christ tend to get sidetracked by the hustle and the bustle and the busyness of life. And so the Apostle Paul has a message for the followers of Christ that will help them maintain perspective, especially in light of the grace that they have received, and especially in light of the grace that you and I have received. He has a special message that will encourage you and help you to move forward in the Christian life in the strength that God supplies. And in the passage that Paul has for us today, there are two very important marks of Christian maturity. And I want to look at these marks together with you. And so would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we will begin reading in verse 11, and I would invite you to stand to your feet. While you're making your way to Ephesians chapter 2, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. It might be funny for you, not so much for me. Uh, Three days ago, the book of Ephesians fell out of my Bible. And uh, being the kind of person that I am, everything has to be just right, I... uh, I can't use that Bible anymore until it gets fixed. And so I'm, I'm working with a fresh Bible today. I, I don't know where anything's at. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made Us, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were Far off and peace to those who were near for through him, we have both access and one spirit to the father. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? We thank you, father, for all that you have delivered us from. We have studied this in great detail over the last several weeks. And God, today we continue uh, to to recognize and acknowledge all that we have been delivered from. Like this dear gentleman who was rescued from this horrible POW camp. God, may this image be a helpful image for us as each of us who are in Christ have also been rescued from the POW camp of sin. 
We have been rescued from the slavery of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin. So we we thank you today for the cross of your son. We thank you for redeeming us, for reconciling us to you, all because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ask that you would be merciful and gracious today as we continue to explore your word, that you, by the power of your spirit, would give us understanding. And so you, God, would be honored above all, and the people of God would be equipped, encouraged, and edified. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Godly Gaze. I want to pose this question, exactly what does this godly gaze involve and how does it contribute to the important topic of Christian maturity? The first mark of Christian maturity, you'll see, involves a godly gaze to the past. The first mark goes something like this. Christian maturity demands reflection. You say, what does that mean when I say Christian maturity demands reflection? Look again in verse 11 and 12. And pay close, close attention to the word remember. Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. I want to begin at the very start of this passage by having you notice the the first word in verse 11. It's a word that you have done, if you have done Bible study for any amount of time, should be very familiar to you. It's the word, therefore. And you recall that whenever you run into the word, therefore, you ask a very important question. You say, what is it therefore? Which will lead you on a backward trek in the passage to examine the context. And so Paul wants us to be clear once again about our position before God apart from grace. He wants the Ephesian believers and all of us to understand and to remember exactly what kind of people we were before grace came cascading into our lives. Now, there's an important command here that we dare not pass over. Paul uses a word that probably, if my suspicions are correct, does not initially look like a command, but it is a command nonetheless. It is an imperative in the original language, in the original Greek. Now, Paul instructs the Ephesians, if you see it there with me in verse 11, to remember. There's the imperative. He calls us to remember, which is to say, keep thinking about, keep thinking about. And it's also an interesting piece of insight to realize this is not only an imperative, but it's written in the present tense in the Greek, which means this. We need to continually remember. We need to keep thinking about something. Now, here he instructs us to remember who we were. Who we were. This is what I like to refer to as our former status. This is our former status apart from grace, apart from the miraculous work of regeneration that the Holy Spirit wrought in our hearts. And so I want to take time as we seek to develop Christian maturity to reflect or to remember our former status. First of all, notice in verse 11. Paul says this, he says, we were, notice past tense, we are formerly outsiders. We were outsiders. We were excluded. Some of you, if you can recall back to the days of playing sports as a young person or as a child, remember what it's like to be standing in a line of people and Two of the leaders in the group say, hey, let's play a game of pickup basketball. And old Fred over here says, I'm the first captain. And John says, I'm the second captain. And I get first picks. And so Fred says, I pick you. And John says, I pick you. How many of you know where this is going? And if you're like me, you've been in a position where you're just praying 
that you're not the last person picked. Well, in this scenario, you're not the last person picked. You're not picked at all. You are an outsider. You are utterly excluded. Paul refers to our previous life apart from grace as Gentiles in the flesh. We were the uncircumcision. Say, what is that all about? Well, as you know, every boy who was born in ancient Israel was to be circumcised on the eighth day because at that point he officially belonged to the covenant people of God. And so circumcised Jews, if you follow the logic here, are distinguished from or set apart from the Gentiles, otherwise known as the non-Jews, who were, you need to remember, who were considered unclean. In the days of Israel, in the ancient days of Israel, if you were not a Jew, by definition, you were a Gentile. And as a result, you were considered unclean. And so not only are you not on the team, not only are you an outsider, you're excluded, but you're viewed as one who is unclean. That is our former status. Second of verse 12, Paul says that we were literally cut off from Christ. We were, as he says, separated from Christ. That word separated means independent. That might not sound so bad to you until you realize the essence of the word's meaning is this. It means that you have no relationship. Apart from grace, you, you stand apart from God. You are without God in the world. Now, Going back to the first century Ephesian church in this region of Ephesus, realized that the the Ephesians, before they discovered grace, or should I say before grace discovered them, the Ephesians worshipped the god Diana before they were believers. And the thought that struck me was that my guess is that we don't have anyone at Christ Fellowship In fact, we probably don't have anyone in this community who worships Diana. Would you agree with that? But in the first century, it was very common for a pagan person. In fact, many of these pagan people, they worshiped this this God, this deity that they referred to as Diana. Now, even though... I'm 100% correct that... I'm totally confident that none of you worship Diana. I hope you don't. And I'm fairly confident that we don't have people in Whatcom County who worship Diana. But here's the thought that came to mind. While Diana is no longer worshipped among Western people, a multitude of other gods are worshipped. Be it materialism, be it sex, be it a, a career, be it a relationship. We, our, our, our hearts, as Calvin said, are idol factories. And we pump idols day in and day out. This is exactly what we were like before grace came cascading into our lives. Number three, I want you to see in verse 12 that we were also aliens. Some of the young people say, cool, aliens. It's not cool. Literally, Paul says we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which is not a good thing. The Greek word means that we were strangers, We were strangers to all that was associated with God and his word. Verse 12 also says, number four, that we were ignorant. Now, I don't know about you, but there's one thing that I I definitely don't like to be referred to is ignorant. There's something about that is, you know, someone can say you're ugly. Who cares? Right. Yeah, I am ugly. But someone says you're ignorant. Boy, that's something that cuts really deep. Well, apart from grace, we were ignorant utterly ignorant. Paul uses this word strangers to the covenants of promise, which means that we were unacquainted with, that we were not knowledgeable, that we were ignorant. That is, we did not belong to the covenant people. Listen to how John MacArthur describes this. He says, a divine covenant is an agreement in which God binds himself to carry out his personal promise to his people, to redeem them from sin, and to bless them forever. He says, faith and obedience are the marks of a person who experiences the fulfillment of the covenant. Please know that before the Ephesians placed faith in Christ, 
They didn't have a clue about these covenantal promises. If you were a Christian today, on this day in the month of March 2018, before grace came crashing into your life, you didn't have a clue about the covenant of promise. You were a stranger to the covenants of promise. It gets worse. Number five in verse 12, if you look with me, Paul says that apart from grace, we were hopeless. He says, having no hope, which means a a confident expectation of a future event. One commentator says this, historians tell us that a, a great cloud of hopelessness covered the ancient world. Philosophies were empty. Traditions were disappearing. Religions were powerless to help men face either life or death. People longed to pierce the veil and get some message of hope from the other side, but there was none. And as I read these words, I had this thought. Yes, that was true in the ancient world, but in our world, it is the exact same dilemma. The same holds true in our culture as people here in our own county. Here in Whatcom County, people are searching desperately for meaning. People are on a desperate quest for hope. But I think you've discovered they're looking for hope in all the wrong places. You see, hope is, is certainly not found in materialism. Hope is not found in a, in a career path. Hope is not found in philosophy. I remember as a, as a young person, I got a new video game. And I really enjoyed that video game. And I remember saving the money to buy the video game. And I thought, once I get this video game, my life's going to be complete. It's a done deal. Have you ever been there? You, you insert the possession in your life. It's, it's a new house. It's a new car. It's a new toy. If only I had a drone. If I had a drone, oh, that's it. I would be totally happy. And here's what you discover. And this is what I discovered with that video game when I was a a teenager is it's so fun is you enjoy it for several days. You might even enjoy it for several weeks. But one day you think to yourself, it doesn't satisfy anymore. Now I need something else. And if I only had and that's exactly the story of our lives. Hope is not found in materialism. It's not found in ideology or philosophy. It's not found Listen, Whatcom County, it's not found in self-effort. It's not found in being a self-made man or a self-made woman. We'll see in a moment that hope is only found in a personal relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a final quality here as we reflect on our previous condition apart from grace. Verse 12 says that we were without God in the world. We were without God in the world. We, in other words, were godless. And of course, to be godless would be the very definition of a person who is without hope. Now, I can't think of anything more sobering, more heart-rending than to have no hope without God in this world. I want you to think about the nations around the world. I want you to think about North Korea, for instance. And think about millions of people who are without hope and without God in this world. I want you to think about the little country in Africa that we highlighted earlier, Togo in Western Africa. And think of the the millions of people who are without hope and without God in this world. And now I want you to think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people here in our own county who are without hope. God and without hope. Paul tells us to reflect as a point of Christian maturity to reflect on our condition apart from grace. Now think about these things together. You were an outsider. You were cut off from Christ. You were an alien. You were ignorant. You were hopeless. You were godless. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have or hope to have. 
It doesn't matter who your friends are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter what your net worth is or how much influence you have in this world or this community. Apart from grace, your life is a mess. Do you believe that? Apart from grace, your life is a mess. Your life had no meaning. Your life was unspeakably wretched. And this is the worst possible scenario that anyone in any culture could ever imagine. You didn't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, you may find this interesting. We have focused quite a bit of energy in Ephesians chapter 2 where we have learned about our condition before God quickened our hearts, before we became Christians. And so you might ask, and some of you might even gain a, a, a little bit annoyed if you think about it, what is the purpose of this ongoing reflection on the past? And some of you might even have this thought, because this is the thought I had as well. You might have wondered how this corresponds to Paul's reluctance now to remember the past. In fact, hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 2 and go over one book to Philippians. And I want to have you look with me in Philippians chapter 3. And this is one of those lights go on kind of a moment in the Christian life. And read with me in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14. And Paul has a reluctance here about looking to the past. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But now, go back to verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We forget what's in the past, but we strain forward For what lies ahead? And so here's the question. It's a great question that you ought to consider in personal Bible study. Do we remember the past or do we forget the past? Do we remember the past or do we forget the past? And I want you to remember there are no contradictions in Scripture. I remember before R.C. Sproul went to be with the Lord, he said, if I ever find a contradiction in Scripture, I abandon the Christian faith. Hear, hear. And I say the same. And I want you to see this is, this is not a contradiction. The question is, do we remember the past or do we forget the past? And here's the answer. Yes. Yes. Do we remember the past? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, this is a command. You are to, on an ongoing basis, remember who you were apart from grace. But he also says, forget the past. And what do we forget about the past? We are no longer under the burden of our sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under the penalty of sin. Sin no longer has power over us. And so in one sense, yes, we remember the past. And in another sense, we forget it. We focus on the kingdom of God and we contemplate our heavenly citizenship. But we also remember what God has delivered us from. My question is this. Why does the scripture urge us and command us to remember who we were apart from grace and apart from Christ. There are four answers to this question. I will commend them to you by way of practical application. The first reason that I believe Paul encourages us and and puts this imperative before us to remember, remember the past is this. It rejuvenates our perspective. It rejuvenates our perspective. It reminds us that we are former prisoners of sin. It reminds us that we were powerless to do good for the glory of God. It reminds us that like the prisoners at Auschwitz and Dachau, there is no escape unless we are rescued. I remember standing in one of the POW camps in the Republic of Belarus, standing next to a few of my students at the Bible college, and we would just stand and, and, and watch and listen. And every few minutes we would hear gong, gong, 
And it just, to this day, it's been years since I've been there, the hair on my arms stand on end because it would cause me to remember all the atrocities that took place in those days during the Second World War. We are called to remember the past because it rejuvenates our perspective. And when we remember what we were like in an unconverted state, which is filthy, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, what does it do? It rejuvenates our perspective. That's the first reason for the imperative. The second reason, I see we've lost our screen. I think it's coming back. The second is that it raises our pride. We remember the past because it raises our pride. And that's uh, actually R-A-Z-E-S. It's the power of spell check, right? It reminds us that apart from grace, we were doomed. It reminds us that apart from grace, we have absolutely nothing to offer. It reminds us that apart from Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, without me... You can do nothing. There's a third reason for remembering who we were apart from grace, and that is it reorients our hearts. When we remember our former condition, it directs our hearts to grace. It directs our hearts to the cross. When we remember our former condition, it helps us to to see the big redemptive picture. We see the full scope of redemptive history, how God rescued us, and now he uses us to advance his sovereign purposes in his kingdom program. Finally, we remember the past because it re-engages our hearts. For when we remember our former condition, it reminds us that we have a high calling. We have a high calling of worship and service. I want to ask you this morning, do you enjoy worshiping? You know, Jason and the worship team makes it very easy for us to worship. Do they not? And we appreciate them so much. So, Jason, thank you so much. But we need to remember that worship involves far more than mere singing. You see, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. I've heard people say from time to time, I'm I'm not much of a singer. That's great. Worship God in every other thing that you do. Worship God when you play. Worship God when you're at the, at the office. Worship God on the basketball court. Worship God when you're visiting with your neighbor. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. When our hearts are reengaged, we, we realize that nothing is more important than glorifying the great God of the universe. And so Christian maturity, you see, demands intense reflection. But in verse 13, we find a a massive, sharp contrast as Paul makes good use of another conjunction. Do you remember the the conjunction that we highlighted in Ephesians chapter 2? Verse 4, it was the word, and I, if I remember correctly, I said it was probably the most, one of the most important conjunctions in all of Scripture. It's the word but. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. He does the same thing now in verse 13, but after he just highlights the six former things that dominated your life apart from grace, he says, but. Are you happy about the word but? But. But. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we see that Christian maturity not only demands intense reflection, Christian maturity demands rejoicing. And while the first aspect of Christian maturity involves reflecting on our previous condition, the second aspect of Christian maturity involves rejoicing in our current condition before God. And so look with me at four realities that should cause intense rejoicing in our life. This is our current status. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, this is your current status before a thrice holy God. Look at verse 13. 
Paul says, but in Christ Jesus, you were far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ. The first thing we need to recognize is, is this. We are intimate friends with God. Now think about that for a minute. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, Les and Patty, you are intimate friends with God. Think about that. Have you ever heard someone who's a name dropper? Oh, yeah, I know him. I know her. I've been there. I've been here. I've been there. Right? Sometimes it gets a little old, right? Oh, yeah, I've been to his house. It's a really nice house. Big deal, right? Here we learn that since we are recipients of grace, we are intimate friends with God. That phrase, brought us near, means this. It means to enter or assume a state or condition of nearness or close proximity. And don't miss the the magnitude of this. This is absolutely astonishing news, especially if you're growing accustomed to remembering who you were apart from grace. You remember the six horrible qualities that we've seen this morning. Because in the same verse, Paul notes our previous condition. Now he says, you who were far off. Now, the word, the phrase far off means this. A great, a great distance in space and time and degree. And this is the way I would teach this. I want you to imagine the, the furthest planet in the solar system that you can even imagine. Now I want you to imagine... A trillion miles beyond that. And that's not even scratching the surface. That's how far you and I were before grace came crashing into our lives. In the same sentence, Paul says that we move from being light years away from God to being intimate friends with God. But don't miss how this change of events took, took place. He said, Paul says, we have been brought near. How? By what I did. By what I said, by what I believed, by what I accomplished, it's none of the above. We have, brought, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. One writer says, through the blood of Christ, sin, the great separator, has been vanquished. How did it happen? It was the blood of Christ on the cross. Now you will recall, and we won't go into great detail for time purposes this morning, but you will recall the Day of Atonement in Old Testament Israel. In Leviticus chapter 16, you will recall that there are really two main events on the Day of Atonement. The first is this, that a goat was sacrificed to the Lord. A goat was sacrificed to the Lord. And then there was another goat that was sent into the desert And we actually have a a saying in the English language that has resulted from this goat who was sent into the desert. Anyone know what that is? It's the scapegoat. Ah, she's a scapegoat, right? He's a scapegoat. Well, the priest not only sacrificed the first goat, but the other goat was sent into the desert as the scapegoat in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. The important point is this, and man, I love that picture. Isn't that cool? It would be something you could hang on your wall and remember. Ah, It's like the day when grace came crashing into my world. But we remember this, that Old Testament sacrifices could never save us from the penalty and the power of sin. Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed all that the Lord Jesus Christ would accomplish in his life, in his death, and when he was buried and raised again. The Lord Jesus Christ would stand in as our substitute and bear the wrath of God for his people. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace By the blood of his cross. Peter says that this way, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he committed no sin 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, citing from Isaiah 53, you have been healed. For you were strained like lost sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. My friends, because of Christ's blood, we are intimate friends with God. We are intimate friends with God. Notice second. The second thing we realize about our status is found in verses 14 and 15. The apostle goes on, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, both who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The second thing we rejoice in is this, is that we are not only intimate friends with God, we have peace with this God. Now there is a, a section in the scripture, there, there is an enmity that I want you to see. It's an enmity that I think you're very aware of between the Jew and the Gentile. And there is an also, also an enmity between sinners and a holy God. What Paul describes here is the greatest peace mission in all of human history, where Jesus not only reconciled Jews and Gentiles, he not only reconciled Jews and Gentiles, but he reconciled them both to himself in the one body, the church. We have not only peace with God, and this is something I think we miss sometimes, we also have peace with one another. Warren Wiersbe says, only when sinners have been reconciled to God through the cross will they truly be reconciled to each other. For a world torn by unrest and friction, the gospel is the only answer. Now, the thought struck me early, early this morning as I was reviewing this passage and reviewing my notes. I'm sure that, that we could all gather a, a long list of reasons why racism is so horrible and reprehensible. I was struck with that when Nathan and I visited with this young woman at Walmart when she said, yeah, people in America aren't very nice to me. I was struck with how, how nasty and ugly and horrible racism is. And so we could come up with a, a huge list of why it's so hor horrible. But consider perhaps the most important reason that racism is evil because racism is an utter repudiation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't like brown people. You have a problem with black people. You struggle with Indian people. You make a big deal about Native Americans. Here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us we have all been brought together. We now are friends. He has reconciled us, and when we treat someone of a different color, be it white, black, brown, or otherwise, that is an utter repudiation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is undermining what Christ accomplished for us on Calvary's cross. But well, we're intimate friends with God. We have peace with God. Verse 16 tells us we have also been reconciled to God. Paul goes on that might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That word reconcile is a very, very important term in the New Testament. It means this, that enmity, that hatred has been removed. It's been, it's been torn down and there's been a, a restoration between two parties who were at odds with one another. You see, as we remember who we used to be before grace came crashing into our lives, when we remember who we were before the cross and before the Lord Jesus Christ, we were, we were at loggerheads with God. There is this enmity against God. Romans chapter 5 says that we were enemies of God. Now because of the cross and the, 
the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that we have been reconciled to God. It implies a relationship that moves from from hostility to friendship. From hostility to friendship. And that's exactly what takes place when Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again. Every person who places faith in Christ is reconciled to a holy God. Can you believe it? It's one thing for me to say it. Christ Fellowship, you've been reconciled to a holy God. But think about it. Think about it when we remember the past. Those six horrible things that we were apart from grace. Now we have been reconciled to a thrice holy God. Paul doesn't end there. He includes one more important category that describes our present status, our current status with God. Verse 18. He says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. That is, we now have access to God. The word means an opportunity to have access to a superior. In this case, the almighty God. This is a term speaking of access that only occurs three times in the New Testament. Let me read each of them to you. First is in Ephesians 2.18 that we've already looked at. Second is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 11, 12, where Paul says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then Paul describes that same reality in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, who's doing this rejoicing and hoping in the glory of God? It's all of God's people who used to do the opposite. It's all of us before grace who were hopeless and godless, burdened with sin, labored under the penalty and the power of sin, now we rejoice and have hope. Wayne Grudem says, when we have Jesus Christ, we also have access by the Spirit to the Father. Listen, he says, the resources of the entire Trinity become ours the moment we receive Christ. It is not just about judicial reconciliation, but an actual intimate relationship with practical value as we meet our needs and bring our needs to the Father. And I think Grudem has touched on something vitally important. I think those of us in a a conservative, a theologically conservative background, like most of us at Christ Fellowship, tend to look at at reconciliation as as only a, a sort of a business transaction. Like, now we're good. We can move on. But it's so much more than that. Now we have this intimate relationship with God. As believers in Christ, we have immediate access to the throne room. Think about it this way. In times of doubt, do you struggle with doubt? In times of doubt, you have access to God. In those days when you are filled with anxiety, and if you're like me, it's late at night when you can't sleep, and then the wheels start to turn. And I want to do this just for fun. If you can relate to that, would you raise your hand? Wow, look at that. Probably half, if not more. So there you are. Your spouse is asleep, and you start thinking about this and that and the future and the past and what is. And call it whatever you want. Call it a panic attack. Call it, you feel like this is, I feel, you feel like you're going nuts. When you have a moment of anxiety, you have access to God. When you are lonely and feel like you're friendless, you have access to God. When your heart is is needy and restless, you too have access to God. In one of the most marvelous promises in all of sacred scripture, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Imagine those of us who 
participate in that promise. Remember who we used to be. Remember those qualities that we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and beyond. Godless, hopeless, strangers to the promises and covenants. We were without God in this world. We were without hope. Now we are told we can draw near to the throne of grace. Here's the truth point this morning, that Christian maturity demands reflection and rejoicing. This is exactly what constitutes the godly gaze. One that reflects on our previous condition apart from grace and one that rejoices in our current status. Last week, Jason and the worship team led us in our monthly time that we are calling Coram Deo. That's a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. And we had about, we had about 35 people here. And it was, if you talk to any person that was here, they will tell you, you missed out. It was wonderful. And as Jason and I visit about how, how, how great this time was, the thought always occurs to me, and I'm sure it occurs to Jason too, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had 300 people here? Outstretched arms, hearts drawn to the throne of God, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. This is my anticipation. My, anticipa- my anticipation is it's coming. Because I, I don't think we can be content to have a small group of 35 people in a town of our size. It's time that we, we reach, in our, reach out in our community. It's time that we see the church begin to grow. Not for growth in and of itself. And it's not so that I can tell my friends, Yeah, I'm in a church where we pastor so-and-so. It's not that at all. It's because we strive to make disciples, do we not? Therefore, we cannot be content with who we are now. We have to move forward into the future and see God doing a mighty work here in this community. So I want to close by asking you to take a moment. I want to have you take a moment to truly reflect on your former condition apart from grace. I want to have you participate in this exercise that I I trust that in the days ahead will be a part of your prayer life, will be a part of your devotional life as you take time to seriously reflect on the past. Meditate on this reality, that you were an outsider, that you were cut off from grace, that you were cut off from Christ, that you had no relationship with God, that you were a foreigner, That you were excluded, that you were not on the team. You weren't the last to be picked. You would never be picked in this scheme. That you were hopeless, that you were godless. And I want you to do as Paul says and take this imperative seriously to remember who you were before grace came exploding into your life. If you're like me and have been a Christian for any length of time, I became a Christian in 1974. If you do the math, that was a long time ago. It's very easy to get complacent. It's very easy to get content. It's very easy to forget who you were. You may also be like me where you came to faith at a very young age. And when you became a Christian, you you didn't understand the full extent of your depravity. My suspicion is many of you are like that. You just say, Pastor, I, I, I didn't fully understand the depth of my lostness. Well, now you're in a position where with biblical knowledge and the help of the Holy Spirit, you can look back and realize the great crevasse that you were delivered from and thank God for that reality. The second part of this exercise is I want you to take a moment to rejoice Rejoice because you have been united with Christ. I shared with the class this morning that the doctrine of union with Christ is perhaps one of the most underemphasized doctrinal realities in the church today, all around the world. Union with Christ. Because you have been united with Christ, you were intimate friends with God. Because you have been united with Christ, you have peace with God. You have been reconciled to God. Now, because you have been united to Christ, you have access to God. And it is my responsibility 
And it is my privilege to tell you that if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, God is simply calling you to do this, to turn from your sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way that you can be delivered from your depravity, from your meaninglessness, from your godlessness. Believing in Christ means that you accept his completed work on the cross for your sins and that you you utterly turn away from your sin. The Bible uses this language as the language of repentance. The language of repentance. It has become fashionable. Thanks to one preacher I can think of in particular that will be nameless this morning who said in a recent article a few years ago that pastors need to stop saying the Bible says. I'll never forget the day I read that. I thought to myself, I'm going to say that a lot now. The Bible says it was one of the legacies of Billy Graham. Who used to always say the Bible says, my friends, the Bible says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Do you have a personal relationship this morning with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? I urge you to trust him. If you're following him, I urge you to Remember who you were apart from grace and to rejoice in the reality of who you are now. And the worship team will lead us in a few songs that will help facilitate just that. Let's have them come forward and let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great hope that we have now in Christ. I pray that you'd help us to take seriously this imperative that is before us to remember our former condition apart from grace. But more than that, I pray that you would help us to rejoice each day to rejoice in in who we are, all because of Christ and the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. God, may we not become complacent. May we not take these great realities, take advantage of them or take them for granted. May we revel in them. May we rejoice because of them. And I, I pray that it would make a difference on the way that we live in this community, that people would see a difference in the way that we live that we would see not just 35 folks come to Corumdale, but we'd see 300. That we would see people in this community grow to love the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he accomplished on the cross. And so, God, now as we sing these songs, would you be, would you please to hear them? Would, would they fill your heart with satisfaction? God, I pray that you would be glorified as we conclude the service together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.